In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Jesus, as we continue our morning together, bless our hearts with the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, that we can have a whole new felt experience of your love for us, that the eyes of our hearts will be open to recognize your presence with us, that we can respond to you with gratitude and praise. We pray especially, Jesus, that we may more fruitfully enter into the different moments of the Holy Mass, take advantage of each of the treasures that the Mass presents before us to prepare our hearts to receive communion with you. Jesus, we pray especially that you would increase our desire to enter into union with you far beyond all we can ask or imagine. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Augustine says, so we're, we've been talking about thoughts, feelings, and desires. But of the three, desire drives the bus. Okay? Uh, you know, if you don't have a desire, you are you're without pathos, you're apathetic, and you do nothing. right? And of course, our desires can be unruly, but God planted our passions and instills desires in our heart that lead us to him and to his good gifts. St. Augustine says this, The entire life of a good Christian is in fact an exercise of holy desire. You do not yet see what you long for, but the very act of longing or desiring prepares you so that when he comes, you may see and be utterly satisfied. That's true at the end of our life when we meet God face to face, but it's true day by day. It's true between the times I encounter Jesus at mass. You know, I'm in a bunch of situations every day with the guy I see in the mirror and with other people around me where Jesus is not at the center, where Jesus is not honored, where he's not praised, where his goodness and truth and the saving power is love are not evident and manifest. And that increases the longing, like, Lord, come to us. Pour out your blessing, pour out your healing, pour out your grace. And if that longing is active in my heart, my experience of Jesus at Mass is much more utterly satisfying. He goes on like this. He says, suppose you're going to fill some holder or container and you know that it'll be, you'll be given a large amount. Then, we, then you set about stretching your sack or wineskin or whatever it is. Why? Because you know that the quantity you will have to put in it and your eyes tell you there's not enough room. So by stretching your container, your sack, therefore you increase the capacity of the sack and this is how God deals with us. Simply by making us wait, he increases our desire, which in turn enlarges the capacity of your soul, making it able to receive what is to be given to us. Ah, okay. So desire is our capacity to receive from God. Desire is our capacity to receive. You know, I know in my life, you know in your lives. There are things that you long for and you pray for and you're wondering, like, Lord, how long? When is, is, and we start to wonder, there's a temptation, like, is God hearing me? Does God care enough about me to do something here? But he does. And this delay, as we consider it, St. Augustine says, is God's way of stretching our hearts as we continue to come to him with the desire, as we seek and knock and ask and do so without tiring, to stretch our heart's capacity to receive the full measure of what he wants to give to us. St. Augustine says this, the desire of your heart is itself your prayer. This is a reflection on the exhortation to pray always. And if the desire is constant, so is your prayer. For nothing did the, not for nothing did the apostle tell us to pray without ceasing, 
But did he mean that we were to be perpetually on our knees, lying prostrate, raising our hands? Is this what is meant by praying without ceasing? Even if we admit that we pray in this fashion, I do not believe that we can do so all the time. Amen, that's true. Yet there's another interior kind of prayer without ceasing, namely the desire of the heart. Whatever else you may be doing, if you but fix your desire on God's Sabbath rest, and by that he means our eternal union with God in heaven, your prayer will be ceaseless. Therefore, if you wish to pray without ceasing, do not cease to desire. The constancy of your desire will itself be the ceaseless voice of your prayer, and that voice of, prayer will, that voice of your prayer will only be silent when your love ceases. For who are silent if not those of whom it is said is because evil is abounded, love of many will grow cold. The chilling of love means that the heart is silent, that desires fall flat. If your love is without ceasing, you are always crying out. If you're always crying out, you're always desiring. And if you're desiring, you are calling to mind heaven, your eternal rest in the Lord. So, uh, I was ordained in 2000, and a lot of difficult things have come to light in the church in 2000. First of all, in 2002, the Long Lent, with all the abuse scandals, presently with all the chaos that's going on, and misery and darkness, right? For those reasons, people sometimes come to me and say, Father, isn't it hard to be a priest today? No, it's not hard to be a priest today. Thank God. That was not my plan for my life, but when God called me to it, and then he gave me the desire to do it, thanks be to God. And he knows how to make me happier than I know how to make myself. And I'm grateful, so grateful, for the gift of my vocation to priesthood. Thanks be to God. Um, but of course, there are certain things that are difficult as a priest. But for me, this is what's most difficult. Ready? What's most difficult for me is to see the death of desire among my parishioners. That when they come into church, I mean, thank God, the one out of three of them who are coming are coming. But it's not with any expectation. It's not with any burning desire, hardly at all. My parishioners, and not all of them, many of them, and not just in my current parish, but other places I've been assigned, would be content just like, oh, his father just does mass once a day and that's it. We don't really want anything else. Because i got all sorts of other stuff going on in my life. That's what's filling up my desire and my appetite. I don't have this longing, burning, like, Jesus, I can't wait to be with you in Holy Communion. Jesus, I want to be a saint. I want to set this world on fire with the fire of your love that's burning in my heart. That's not what's happening as people are coming through the door. So if you think of it through desire or expectation, a lot of that is flat. Uh, I spent seven years in my priesthood on two different college campuses. Give me a virulent atheist, right? Someone who is just raging against God and religion and those Catholics especially all day long. Because that person has energy. And that's like a rubber band, that's stretching, stretching, stretching. They are very close to becoming a radical saint. <laughs> and that thing snaps and that energy goes the other way. Watch out! <laughs> But give me the cynical, jaded, been there, done that graduate from our Catholic high school. Yeah, I had that thought, thanks. Give me someone who's unchurched, because when they start to hear the truth, the desire is awakened in their heart, and the desire moves them. So for me, the hardest thing is the death of desire. So I pray for my parishioners, I pray for myself. I pray often, 
And uh, I just need to pray more ceaselessly for the awakening of desire. Desire is our capacity to receive. We are, unless we first receive from God, we're incapable of doing anything. Receive my love, remain in my love, and then you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. So we want to pray, Jesus, increase our desire for you. And it turns out the more that we have a, t- a tasted or felt experience of God's love, the more the desire of our heart is awakened. Okay, on to the Mass. So we've laid this foundation that relational prayer is about acknowledging and relating our thoughts, feelings, and desires to God so that we can be maximally receptive. And what we receive from God calls for a response. That, by the way, is not a method of prayer. I pray for an hour a day. It's not like, okay, 15 minutes acknowledge, 15 minutes relate, 15 minutes receive, 15 minutes respond. I'm an engineer. That would be very appealing. But that's not what it is. These are relationship habits. And so when my relationship with God seems to stall out or gets kind of flat, I can look around and say, like, well, is there stuff that's going on in myself that I'm not paying attention to? Are there things that I'm aware of that are going on that I haven't told God about, that I'm not relating is God offering me things that I'm just kind of skating by, like, oh, that was really nice, God, thanks. That he wants me to rest and savor and receive deeply. And if I've been receiving from God, well, am I giving as a gift what I've received as a gift? Or I'm just kind of holding on to it myself. So when our relationship with God kind of gets weak or timid, tepid, or flat, we can look at those four habits and say, is there one or another of those habits that I'm not really engaging in around something that's going on in my life? So four dynamics of growing intimacy with God. So, <clears throat> acknowledge, relate, receive, respond, since the, the, the Mass is the greatest prayer of the church. These dynamics are all over the Mass. So I'm just going to start going through uh, parts of the Mass and offering you some thoughts and reflections. And my goal here is this. Eventually I want to write a book. But the goal here is this, that each moment of the Mass, there's no wasted things in the Mass. There's a lot of things we just do by rote, you know. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Right? Amen. There's that part in the preface that ends with through Christ the Lord, but it's not the end of the prayer, and our response isn't amen, because we're going to go into the holy holy, right? But like two-thirds of the people are like, knee jerk, through Christ the Lord. Oh, amen. Right? Because <laughs> it's just, it's our habit. It's our habit, right? So this is just uh, a side effect of familiarity. Well, what I want to do, what I hope that in, the ne- in this conference and the next one, uh, as we kind of run through these things, is that it would give you thought to consider each moment of the Mass for yourself and ask the question, how is God offering himself to me? What is the grace or blessing? What does God want me to receive from him in this moment of the Mass? What is my experience of this moment of the Mass like? And how can I respond to God more fully in this moment of the Mass? And in this way, engaging those dynamics to enter into a greater encounter with Jesus at the Mass, the great gift of the Mass. So, we're going to start out in the beginning. <laughs> in the beginning with uh, the sign of the cross. Okay? With the sign of the cross. Okay. Most common thing we do all the time in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. And um, the first thing I'd like to suggest to you is the connection of the sign of the cross with our baptism. I love baptisms. This is a great joy as a priest to celebrate the gift of baptism, to see the life of grace be instilled in this little baby's soul. What, a, what, a, what an honor, what a joy to see that rebirth to supernatural, divine life. And there's that part, what name have you given your children? 
your child, and the parent responds, parents respond, and then the priest or the minister says, Tommy, I claim you for Christ our Savior by the sign of his cross, right? And now trace this cross on your forehead and invite your parents and godparents to do the same. If we want to enter into Mass more fully, we want to recognize that as we begin our prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we are recognizing the gifts that we've received in baptism. That as an adopted son or daughter of God, we can call on God by name as a member of God's family. And I want to, in that moment, do what happened at baptism. Now, if we were baptized as infants, our parents, in their love for us, did this on our behalf. But as we've grown up, we're supposed to do this ourselves. To renew our baptismal promises. Do you reject Satan and all his empty works and all his empty promises? I do, I do, I do. Do you reject sin so as to live in the freedom of God's children? Do you reject the glamour of evil, refuse to be mastered by sin? Do you reject Satan, the father of sin and the prince of darkness? I do! Right? Now, I don't think of this every time I make the sign of the cross at Mass or throughout my day, but I can, and it's helpful when I do, right? Yes, I reject the enemy and his lies and the chains of sin by which he seeks to enslave me. And I believe, I turn to God and I profess belief in God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And this is the power of what we're doing every time we begin Mass with the sign of the cross. At our baptism, our uh, parents or godparents receive the baptismal candle, receive the light of Christ. Parents and godparents, this light is entrusted to you be, to be kept burning brightly in this child's life. Right? You and I have received the light of faith. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and he has chosen our souls in baptism to be his temple, to be his dwelling place. A number of years ago, in, in 1999, I went on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. It was right before I was going to be ordained a uh, transitional deacon. And uh, when we were there, we went to... Yad Vashem, which is the National Holocaust Memorial in Israel. And we were just there for a little bit, so we didn't have time to go through the whole, it's a whole, like, acreage and different monuments and memorials. But I went to a building called the Hall of Remembrance. And in the Hall of Remembrance, as you walk in, it's like a circular walkway leading to a center chamber. And as you walk along this dark corridor, just, lit, just so you know where the pathway is, the names of the victims of the Holocaust are being read. And you come into the center chamber, and there's an eternal flame of remembrance. And that uh, center chamber is mirrored. So the one light from this flame of remembrance is reflected in millions of points of light, right? And it's very impactful. It's very dramatic. And you're hearing the names that are perpetually being recited in memory of those victims of the Holocaust. Well, I left that, and I was very shaken. It was very impactful. And it was heavy, like dark and heavy. And I thought, reasonably enough, that's because of just the horror of what's being commemorated there, naturally enough. But this stayed with me for a few days. And I was noticing this, just that darkness and that heaviness of that, just remembering being in that chamber and seeing the flame and the thousand points, millions of points of light, and I realize this is the problem. That flame is burning in that center chamber, but the chamber is still dark. The, the light is shining, but the darkness overcomes the light. 
in the image of that room. And it's like an image of despair. I know that's not what it's intended for at all, but that's what it's like. There's no hope in it. And we read that Jesus Christ is the light that comes in the world, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. What what hope do I have in the face of such inhumanity and horror and naked evil like the Holocaust? My hope is in Jesus Christ, whose love conquers overwhelmingly even the face of that much evil. Thanks be to God. Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. You and I all carry burdens of darkness in our heart. Hurts, resentments, broken relationships, things that we've done, our sins that have caused damage to others that we still hold on to. Like, there's areas of darkness in our heart. Jesus, every time we make the cross, wants to bring the brilliant victory, the glory of the resurrection to shine in our hearts and to scatter every last shadow of darkness that's in our heart. When I'm walking in the door with the holy water pot, like... Am I thinking that this is what's offered to me? Because it's the truth. The whole saving power of Christ is made present and effective for us at every Mass. Think about that. All the power, all the beauty of his birth in Bethlehem with the angels singing glory to God in the highest. The tenderness and uh, approachableness and the, sort of the uh, warm, affectionate invitation of Jesus as the baby in the manger who doesn't like to cuddle up to a nativity scene. Right? <coughs> That is present and effective for us at every Mass. Jesus' entrance into the ordinariness of his life for 30 years of his 33 years of life, his hidden life in Nazareth, being made holy because everything Jesus does, everything Jesus says, every action of his life, not just of his public ministry, is salvific. It makes our lives holy because he's entered into them. So Jesus present in all the ordinariness of our lives. All the power of, and wisdom of Jesus' preaching. All the amazement and the saving power manifest in his miracles as he cures the leper and heals the blind man and raises the dead man to life and changes the wine into water and walks on the water and calms the storms of the sea. All of that power is present and effective for you and me at every Mass. Jesus' victory over the enemy where he casts out Satan and every evil spirit without a fight. Because there's no fight between Satan and Jesus. There's a fight between Satan and St. Michael the Archangel. That's a fight. Between Jesus and Satan, who's just a creature, no fight at all. I have nothing to fear. Deliver us, Lord, from every evil and grant us peace in our day after the Our Father. This power, a saving power of Jesus, made present and effective. All of the manifest love of his suffering and death on the cross. No greater love is there, is there than this, than to lay down your life for your friends. Is made present and effective for us at every Mass. The glory of his resurrection, his ascension into heaven at the right hand of the Father, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, which radically transforms the apostles and all the disciples of Christ with the very power of the risen Christ, Jesus who came, returned to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus pours out the Holy Spirit on his apostles to clothe them with his power for the proclamation of the kingdom. <sighs> All right, so the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus, the victory of Jesus over evil, all the healings of Jesus, the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus, his ascension, and the glory of the Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost, all of that made present and effective for us at every Mass.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. This is what we can receive because this is what God intends to give to us by virtue of our baptism, which we remember with the sign of the cross as we begin. Thanks. It's good to be with you. All right. <laughs> uh, I lost my name. Some great quotes from fathers of the church about just the sign of the cross. A name is, oh, this is from Dr. Edward Shree. This is a great book, by the way, I want to recommend to you. Um, Ted Shree, A Biblical Walk Through the Mass, Dr. Edward Shree. It's fantastic. It goes through every part of the Mass with a lot of wonderful reflections, very much on the way that I'm trying to structure our conferences here. <clears throat> S-R-I. Uh-oh, I just got home. I did a bad thing. One moment, please. So I highly recommend it, but this is what he says. A name mysteriously represents the essence of a person and carries the power of that person. Therefore, to call upon God's name is to invoke his presence and his power. That's what we're doing every time we make the sign of the cross, also at the beginning of Mass. St. John Chrysostom, never leave your house without making the sign of the cross. It'll be your staff, a weapon, an impregnable fortress. I love this. Neither man nor demon will dare to attack you, seeing you covered with such powerful armor. You have been claimed for Christ our Savior by the sign of his cross. You belong to God. You are God's beloved son and daughter. Let this sign teach you that you are a soldier, ready to combat against the demons, and ready to fight the, for the crown of justice. Are you ignorant of what the cross has done? It has vanquished death. It has destroyed sin. It has emptied hell, dethroned Satan, and restored the universe. Would you then doubt its power? How are we containing ourselves at the beginning of the Mass? It'd be like, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes! <laughs> so there's more for us to receive. St. John, uh, St. Cyril of, of Jerusalem. Let the cross, as our seal, be boldly made with our fingers upon our brow and on all occasions. Over the bread we eat, over the cups we drink, in our comings and in our goings. Before sleep, on lying down and rising up when we are on our way and when we are still. It is a powerful safeguard, for it is grace, a grace from God, a badge of the faithful and a terror to the devils. For when they see the cross, they are reminded of the crucified. They fear him who has smashed the heads of the dragon. Woo. Okay, so some action items to enter into that moment of the Mass more fully. Read the scriptures and see the things that are done in the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 3, uh, Peter and John are going up to the temple and there's that crippled beggar. And they catch his eye. And Peter says, look, look at us. And he thinks they're going to give him some alms. But he says, neither silver nor gold do I have to give to you. But what I do have, I give. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And the man leaps up, and he's healed of his paralysis. He can, he's crippled, and now he can walk. And then we hear that he's leaping for joy. He's in the temple area, like, skipping around. I can walk. Look at me. Look at this. Right? Because when the power of God, the mercy of God is manifest, the contagion of joy and gratitude spreads throughout the assembled people. And that was all sparked in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. Jesus says, you will do the things that I do, and you will do greater things than these. And we will do them, as Jesus does by nature, we will do by grace in his name. 
Colossians 3.17 challenges us. Whatever you do in word or deed, do in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a great spiritual exercise. Take a part of your day, <laughs> and uh, I can't do this for very long, but to take a part of your day, and before you say or do anything, quietly in your heart say, in the name of Jesus, and then say what you're going to say or do what you're going to do. And at the end of what, when you're done speaking or doing, say quietly in your heart, Jesus, in your holy name. And see whether or not what's in the middle, of, in your name, Jesus, Jesus in your holy name, fits, right? What you say or do and the way that you say or do it. It is a, a wonderful but daunting little spiritual exercise and can help us understand the power of doing what we do in the name of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Read through the rite of baptism. You can find it if you have eye bravery. You can read through the rites, the prayers that are there. Um, see in this white garment the outward sign of your Christian dignity. With your family and friends to help you by word and example, bring that dignity unstained to the gates of eternal life. And you're clothed with your baptismal garment. How's that going for you today? Right? I need to send mine to the dry cleaner. That's why I go to confession every two weeks. That's what I do. That's right. But uh, what's missed a lot in the baptism, because it's such a joyful occasion as that that moment is directly related to the moment of the death of that child. Hopefully 90, 100 years later, but directly related to that moment. Because at the funeral, what do we do? We sprinkle the casket with the holy water as a reminder of their baptism, asking God to fulfill for them the great and precious promises of their baptism. And then we cover the earthly remains with the funeral pall, which is the baptismal garment the outward sign of their Christian dignity because their body was a chosen dwelling place of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and so we are honoring them in the funeral. Celebrate your baptismal anniversary. You know your birth date? Do you know your baptismal date? You can find out. Call the parish where you're baptized. They'll tell you. And celebrate it. And celebrate with your kids and your grandkids or your nieces and nephews. Because while there's all sorts of reason for joy at the birth of a child into the world, who isn't smiling and rejoicing, right? It's far greater cause for rejoicing on the day of baptism because eternal life has come to that child. That natural life is buried with Christ and reborn to a supernatural life that will never end. In fact, a participation in God's own life, eternal life, through Jesus with him and in him. We can't think too often or too deeply about that. Plan your funeral, right? The sign of the cross means a lot more to me because of my... I've been claimed for Christ our Savior by the sign of his cross. I've entered into salvation when I realize that death is on the way. It's a good idea anyways to get your affairs in order long before you're facing death. It'll be a blessing to your spouse and to your children so they don't have to sort this out once you're gone. It's not a morbid thing to think about death. The church has always encouraged us to think about the last things frequently, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. Because it is a spur to the daily living of our faith and receiving more from God each day. Okay. The greeting, Lord be with you and with your spirit. Or the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all Amen. and with your spirit. Amen. That's right. And just that simple greeting reminds us that God is present with us. Jesus says in Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you even till the end of the age. Do you know that the most real person in the room right now is Jesus Christ? Where two or three are gathered in his name, there I am in the midst of them. Now, if I'm going through life, 
if I was like right now, uh, believe that there were not 80 people sitting at tables here, but rather this is a room full of giraffes, right? And instead of tables, there were bouncy houses or something, right? I would not be in touch with reality. And that's not a good thing, right? That would be something that needs attention and hopefully can be corrected because I'm suffering a mental illness because I'm not in touch with reality. But that's physical reality, material reality that appeals to my physical senses, sight, sound, smells, tastes, and textures. But we profess in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, of all things, and there's a whole order of creation that does not register in our physical senses. It is the spiritual dimension of creation. And spiritual reality is made up of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, eternal divine spirit. Created spirits without physical bodies, the angels, and then those angels who rebelled were the demons. And human souls, which are spiritual in nature. That's spiritual reality. Jesus is present among us, but he's not visible to our physical senses. But he's the most real person in the room, because he's a divine person. And to the degree that I'm not aware in a given moment that Jesus is with me, according to his word, I'm not in touch with reality. And that's something that needs to be healed. Jesus, give me eyes to see and ears to hear, to see your face and to hear your voice as you are with me at every moment. The Lord be with you. That's a reminder that God is with you. Throughout scripture, when people say, God is with you, or the Lord is with you, or the Lord was with him for, they're about to do great deeds in the God's power for his people. The Lord be with you is a prayer to remind us that God is present and to pray the blessing that we can receive that presence and be empowered for, by him for the work that he, had, he calls us to do in union with him. There we go. John chapter 20, the doubting Thomas. This is a great biblical vision of how God is with us always, even when we don't notice it. Remember, the apostles see Jesus in the upper room. And when Tom, but Thomas was gone, and when he comes back, he says, we've seen the Lord. He appeared to us. And Thomas says, what? Unless I probe the nail marks, uh, nail marks in his hand and place my hand in his side, I will not believe. And a week later, Jesus comes back and says, Thomas, here, take your hand and probe the nail marks. Take your hand and place it in my side. In your side. Take, place it in my side. There's a great uh, painting by Caravaggio where Jesus is taking the hand of Thomas. And he's just like, you know, in awe. My Lord and my God. But what does that tell you? It tells you that when Jesus was no longer appearing to them, he was attentive and present to Thomas when Thomas was declaring his obstacles to believe. He knew exactly what Thomas needed because he's with Thomas always. When Thomas is blurting out, uh, I need to probe the nail part point, part, the nail prints and put my hand in his side, right? He's with us always, even when we don't recognize him. In the liturgy, oops, in the liturgy, we talk about the presence of God in four important ways. In the gathering of the faithful, that is the gathering of the church, which are the members of Christ's body, Christ is present. He is present in another way in the uh, person of the priest, because I am sacramentally ordained to act in persona Christi. So at the words of institution, uh, and the consecration of the bread and wine into the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Christ, the priest says, Take this, all of you, and eat it. This is the body of Jesus. No, we don't. We say, this is my body. 
And this is the meaning of the response that you, you give to the priest when he says, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Because the priest is ordained to act in the person of Christ, and you're praying that God will be with me in the deepest part of my being, which is that indelible character of my priestly vocation, that God would be with me, that I'd be one with him in carrying out my service in persona Christi for your sake in the consecration and the prayers of the Mass. Okay? So the, Christ is present in the person of the priest. God is present in his word, in the power of his holy word, and he's present in a way par excellence in the Holy Eucharist. Because in the Holy Eucharist, Jesus is present completely. Body and blood, soul and divinity. The fullness of his humanity, body and soul, and the outpouring of his blood for us in his sacrifice, and all the saving power, as I was describing earlier, uh, is made present and effective for us in the Holy Eucharist itself. Okay? Just a simple greeting. Israel used to boast, what nations have gods as close to them as the Lord God is to us. Great homework to enter into this, this greeting more deeply is to think how close the Lord is with me, that he promises to be with me always, that there's nothing I'm going through in my day or this week or that I went through last year or 10 years ago, even in the worst and darkest moment of my life, Jesus was with me. And maybe I didn't know how to look for him and to receive his presence and his love and his grace, but maybe I know more how to do that today. And that's never lost. How close is Jesus to us still? He has chosen our souls as his dwelling place. God dwelt and his glory filled the temple in Jerusalem and it filled the portable tabernacle tent structure for 40 years in the wilderness. But there's something much greater than the temple here. There are living human souls which God has consecrated in baptism to be his dwelling place. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit and where the Holy Spirit is, so is the Son and the Eternal Father. Just some thoughts to enter into this more deeply. Praying with John 15, Jesus' desire for him to remain with us always. Remain in my love. Jesus makes that possible by being with us at every moment. The prayer I prayed at the beginning of this morning, John 17, Jesus' desire that where he is, we may also be with him. So at every moment, Jesus goes before us to prepare a place for us, and then he turns to us to draw us to himself. Right? That great promise of Jesus isn't just about heaven. It is about heaven. But it's also about every moment of our life. Jesus goes before us and lives that moment of our lives, and then he draws us to be in union with him at every moment. Okay. Attend an ordination of a priest. Have any of you here not been to a priestly ordination? This is an interesting question. Oh my gosh, you guys turn out. Look at you. Mostly like two-thirds of people in a group are like, oh, I've never been to a priestly ordination. Good for you. It is an inspiring moment, and it strengthens us in our faith. Okay. After the greeting, we enter into the penitential rite. Lord, have mercy. Divine mercy is God's love poured out on human misery. So everything that God gives us is a grace. It's a gift of himself, a gift of his life. Grace is a Christiform participation in divine life. So when God loves us, he gives us himself. He pours out his life into our hearts. Like St. Paul says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That's a great definition of grace. But we call different experiences of grace different things. And the particular experience that we have with God, as God gives himself to us, is when God pours out his love for us in the face of some misery that we're experiencing. 
could be physical suffering, emotional suffering, psychological or spiritual suffering, so spiritual desolation, mental illness, physical illness, um, all the trials and tribulations and burdens that a person can experience in life. When the love of God comes and ministers to us in that misery, that meeting with God is what we call mercy, a particular grace that we call mercy. So that certainly includes the forgiveness of sins, right? Because sin makes me miserable. And the love of God, when he offers his forgiveness and restoration, lifts that misery from me. And so that's properly called mercy. But mercy is much broader than just the forgiveness of sins. So when someone has hurt me, and I have started to believe in that woundedness a lie, that I'm unlovable, or I'm not enough, or I'm all alone, or I only mess things up, and that's who I am. When the love of God comes into those lies and dispels them with the light of his truth, and takes away the pain, and takes away the fear, and takes away the burden, that is mercy. And there's no sin on my part involved in any of that, unless I've stubbornly clung to those lies, even though I know better. Okay. So, divine love poured out on human misery. Of course, the most profound, beautiful parable of mercy is the prodigal son. And I want to use the prodigal son to illustrate how we can enter into the penitential rite at Mass more deeply. And I'm going to illustrate six moments of repentance that are very clear in this teaching of Jesus, this story of mercy that Jesus offers us. Number one, in repentance. So we know repentance is turning away from sin, turning back to God. Amen. That's true. I just want to go into a little more detail, unpacking those moments. So the first thing that happens by God's mercy when I repent, when I receive the gift of repentance, is that I start to feel the pain or the misery that my sin is causing and I start to feel it, and that's a blessing. You know, in leprosy, right, you lose the sensation of touch, from what I understand. Right? So it's a good thing when I put my hand on a burning hot stove that I feel the pain of it, so I can snatch my hand away and not do more damage. Right? Right. It is not a good thing, like, oh, if I didn't feel any pain, I could just sit there and tell it was like completely roasted critter, you know, palm steak. <laughs> that would not be a good thing. That would be a bad thing. And part of the deterioration of the body of the leper is that they will cut themselves and they'll get infections, they'll do other damage to those cells, but they won't feel it because of the leprosy. Okay? And they just kind of keep going to pieces. So it's possible that when Jesus healed the leper, there might have been a moment of exquisite pain when the feeling of the sensation of feeling returned before that damage was also restored. And in repentance, that's true. In the parable of the prodigal son, there's a moment where he came to his senses as he's starving, longing to fill his belly with the pods that he fed to the pigs. And for a Jewish man, this is like as low in a state as he coming to be a pig feeder. And he wants to eat the pig chow, but no one's going to give him any pig chow. And he's starving. And he just rec recognizes the wretchedness of where he's come. And that must have been a painful moment, but it was a graced moment that began his repentance, number one. He felt the pain. Number two, then he awoke immediately to a desire for something better. Surely, even my father's hired servants have more than enough to eat. There can be something better for me. And I desire it, the awakening of desire for something better. Thirdly, a hope and trust. Like the prodigal son has a hope and a trust in his father that my father will probably receive me back. At least I can beg him to receive me back as a hired hand. I mean, he could never receive me back as his son, but he can receive me back as his servant. 
And so that hope and trust in our repentance to God, that God will and God is capable of bringing about the something better in the face of my misery, that he can do it and that he wants to. And that birth of hope or trust is essential in repentance. And then to go to God. And so he went, he set out for his father's house. I have to make a move. As Catholics, that means usually, and as a repenting for my sin, I got to go to confession. Or I'm preparing for this moment at Mass, which involves also the absolution of my venial sins. And I have very clearly in my heart, ready for that moment, let us call to mind our sins. And a lot of times, us priests don't give you enough time to really take that seriously. So it helps us if we've done this in the pregame, right? Uh, getting ready for Mass throughout the course of the week or the course of that day that I know the sins that I am most repentant of, and I want to offer them to God in that moment to ask for his mercy. So I'm going to go to God, and I'm going to confess my sins. Father, I've sinned against, or Father, I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against God, the prodigal son says. And I'm going to ask for that forgiveness. And then we are astounded, because Jesus, who's telling us about his Father in heaven through this parable, describes the reaction of the father. Every Jewish person who is listening to this parable is expecting for the father to publicly denounce the son and declare to the assembled people, this son is no son of mine, he has not my name, he has a, he has a no name, he's a no person, and he is dead to me. That's what everyone's expecting, because that's a rabbinical story. But instead he says, quick, slaughter the fattened calf, bring a robe and place it around his shoulders, put the ring on his finger, and sandals on his feet. Restore the signs of his dignity, of the truth of who he is as my beloved son. And then come, let us rejoice. For the son of mine was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, and he's been found. The fullness of repentance involves also, as we've felt the pain and misery that we're in, we've desired something better, we've had a birth of hope and trust that God will provide what is better for us. And we ask for that forgiveness and for that something better. To enter into the joy of the Father. A lot of us hang on to self-recrimination and self-beating ourselves up, even though we've been forgiven by God. And it's like the prodigal son, all, this stuff, all his dignity is restored, and he's like, yeah, but I can't celebrate because I'm such a screw-up. A lot of us count ourselves out from the fullness of what God wants to give us because of things like that that cling to us, that hinder us from entering into the fullness of the Father's joy. And very often that will drag us back into the sin of which we repented. So six moments of the fullness of repentance as we enter into uh, the penitential rite. Jesus desires to heal us in mind and body or spirit. So again, mercy, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, is not just um, for the forgiveness of sins, but it's a healing of mind and body or spirit. I want to, for our time of uh, Holy Hour, which will be coming up here before Mass, to give you a couple suggestions of biblical passages to reflect on the power of Jesus to heal and his desire to heal. So Mark chapter 10, I'll just write down the book in the chapter real quick. Mark chapter 10, the healing of Bartimaeus, a physical healing. Mark chapter 5, the deliverance of the Gerasene demoniac 
who is enslaved by a legion of evil spirits. And Mark's account of this describes especially the misery of this man. Night and day among the tombs, he's isolated, he's lonely, he's gashing himself with stones. You couldn't have a more miserable picture. And yet Jesus completely restores him in an instant, without a fight. He permits evil spirits to go into the swine. And Jesus allowed them. The power of Jesus to deliver us from the snares of the enemy. John chapter 4, this is a lot of relational healing and restoration of the woman at the well. Why is she going to the well outside of town in the heat of the day to draw her water? Because she doesn't want to be seen in town because she has a reputation because she's had five husbands and the one she has now is not her husband. And Jesus beautifully unlocks her heart, invites her to tell him all about it so that she can receive the truth that God seeks her and God desires her and she's beloved of God. And God loves her, in fact, with his spousal love. That's a whole other story. You can have me back for another conference. <laughs> and uh, the Good Samaritan. Think of all that the Good Samaritan does. He provides for everything. He has compassion. He doesn't steer away from the suffering and the misery of that poor man who fell in with robbers. He anoints him with oil. He does the, the triage right on the spot. And then he takes him to an inn and provides for him to be cared in a comprehensive way and will provide everything that's needed in his generous, generous love. And then, as I said, John the, um, sorry, Thomas, this is that picture from Caravaggio, in John chapter 20. Prodigal, uh, I'm sorry, the Good Samaritan was in Luke 10. I didn't mention that in John 4. Okay? Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. amen. Jesus, in this moment, Help us to come to you full of trust and confidence in the power of your merciful love, made fully present and effective for us at every Mass, as you are present with us in the gift of the Holy Eucharist. I pray, Lord, that as we come before your Eucharistic presence, we may have the courage to entrust to you every burden, every hurt, everything that is fearful or tired in our hearts to receive from you the gift of our healing. You are powerful to heal. In your love, you desire to heal. You are the Lord of mercy. And we ask you to have mercy upon us in all the ways that we need, that we may be amazed by your goodness and your love. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be. World without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.